Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and it's a weird and whimsical episode this week. Our guest is Kelly Link, short story extraordinaire, Pulitzer Prize nominee, and knower of interesting things. Many of you will have read some of her collections, Stranger Things Happen, Magic for Beginners, Pretty Monsters, and Get in Trouble. We each have our favourites, no doubt. Well, now... She's got a new collection. It's called White Cat, Black Dog. And as Kelly herself will soon explain, it comes bound in the theme of fairy tale, though not as you would expect or even recognise. Hardcore horror fans, do not be alarmed. This is not a conversation about princesses in faraway castles or brave stable boys who must rescue them. And even if it was, the princesses would have sharp claw boy would end up bleeding out on the floor. Instead of all of that, we talk about how Kelly reinvents stories, how she blends genres so effectively, and how she deals with the story. We lament the loss of an amazing science fiction author, and I finally get the chance to discuss my favourite short story of recent years, which happens to be in this collection. Slight admission, we had some technical issues, so we had to record this via Zoom rather than my usual tool. So it means the audio isn't quite as crystal clear. If this is your first episode of Talking Scared, please know that the sound is usually much better than this. And remember, if you want more Talking Scared, you simply sign up for Patreon. Subscribers get lots and lots of extra episodes, including bonus chat from the guests and some exclusive interviews just for you. And I'd like to give a shout out to some recent additions to the Patreon crew. Hello, Tracy, David, Robert, the Bristol Reader, Rob at Booked, Hayden, Mary, Grace, Nick, Sadie and Chelsea. You guys should feel good about yourselves for helping this ship keep floating. But everyone, come with me to a house deep in the Vermont countryside. If someone knocks on the front door, you must not let them in. Why? Who knows? But it's not safe. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Kelly, and a big welcome to Talking Scared. How are things? Things are are pretty great. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on. You're more than welcome. Where, Where are you speaking to us today? I live in Northampton, a small town in Western Massachusetts. Okay, so I read an article about your home, and more more importantly, your work, actually. There was a a great article in Vulture that came out last week, which was really useful for this podcast. Um, And I I read about your office setup. It sounds pretty wonderful. You, You share a kind of steampunk space with some fellow writers, I believe. You know, this is one of the great things about writing is that it is a very portable uh, kind of work. So I have written in NICUs. I have written at my kitchen table. I have written in cafes. And uh, for the last couple of years, I have gone over to my friend Cassandra Clare's house and worked with her and a sort of revolving cast of of other writers who are in the area. I would get nothing done because I I just talk a much better story than I write and probably kill all the ideas before I even manage to pin them down on paper. We have a we have a, a lot there's a lot of conversation, a lot of I guess writerly water cooler conversation, but we all have deadlines, we all have headphones. And so <laughs> we manage to get some work done as well. I sit in a room on my own all day with my dog and I get nothing done. So I'm I'm envious of your dedication. <laughs> um I mean, you do tend to get things done. You, you've you released four previous collections of short stories, each to rapturous applause. Uh, I think you're my first person on here who's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, so that's a first. Uh, but you've got a brand new set of stories out in the world. It's called White Cat, Black Dog, and it came out last week on the 28th of March. Um, and more than any of your previous collections, and I've read a few, this one seems to have a kind of central conceit pulling it together. So could I ask you to introduce listeners to White Cat, Black Dog, and tell us a little about this book and your approach? Yes, uh, this collection is a little bit of a departure for me in the sense that 
early on as I was writing the first handful of stories, the first two stories, um, I began to think about whether it might be interesting to not not come up with a unifying theme so much as as a unifying approach. And so I decided that whatever it was that I wanted to write about when I wrote a short story, I would think about it through the lens of a particular fairy tale. Um, so all of these stories are, I hope, stories in their own rights, but they are all engaging in some way with fairy tales that I, I love or found interesting. Um, so The White Cat is one. East of the Sun, West of the Moon is, is another. Um, Snow White and Rose Red. And that was kind of a handy way to uh, make myself sit down and work. I like to have a couple of things in my mind, not just the material of the story that I'm going to write, but I like to have some idea about how I'm going to approach that material. And this was a very useful organizing principle uh, to, to do that. What what was your approach? Because I've got a very layman's idea of fairy tales, right? I know there's various versions of a Bluebeard, for example. You know, I know the basic ones that you hear at primary school, but there are some stories in here that I've never encountered before. So I don't really know often what the inspiration was or how different your take on it is. So what what was your approach? Did you set yourself kind of limits of change that you were going to allow yourself or were there elements of the, the originals that you wanted to maintain? How did you go about it? Well, my my limitations were actually that I did not want to, even in this book, uh, repeat myself. I didn't want to have the same approach um, that I wanted to tell the kind of stories that I like to tell anyway, which which are stories coming out of genre, fantasy, science fiction, and horror. I wanted to uh, describe the strangeness of, of contemporary life. And with this collection, uh, the, the additional constraint or the additional uh, goal was for my own pleasure to engage with fairy tales, but in such a way that regardless of whether or not the reader recognized the particular fairy tale, uh, to to sort of embroider those stories into the background or the foreground or to um, even use the structure of, of, a, of a particular fairy tale, but in such a way that it stood as its own thing. Um, I was a little surprised early on that some very careful readers uh, who looked at the collection didn't even see the fairy tale titles, the, the subtitles that to them, those sort the subtitles made the fairy tales invisible. And uh, that actually also gives me some delight. The fact that uh, the fairy tale can be there as the, the skeleton or one of the organs, um, but, but not necessarily be entirely visible. Yeah. Well, you, you use the phrase, the strangeness of contemporary life. I'm glad you said that, because I think that articulates better than I could what connects all of the work of yours that I've read. So let's start with that first story, The White Cat's Divorce, because it does establish this tone, this kind of ricocheting tone between the fairy tale register and some really sort of prosaic details of modern life. There are basically anth anthropomorphized cats living in glass houses in the wilds of Colorado, but they're growing pot. <laughs> and th that that strange juxtaposition of the really odd and the really mundane seems to be there in a lot of your work and a lot of these stories. And is that is that just a pleasure for you? Or are you trying to say something about the contemporary experience to use a pompous term both i think you know you use the word register and uh i that's a word that i'm very interested in thinking about when i work um because you're right fairy tales have a a particular tonal quality or a a kind of approach to language that that we recognize and we think you know once upon a time is is part of that language um but also the the tone can be a little bit more formal. And so one of the one of the things that I was 
took a great deal of, of pleasure when I was writing that story is um, the fact that I could move between the more formal register of the fairy tale and the much more uh, contemporary kind of awkward grammar and, and point of view of, of the protagonist who is, who is in his, you know, barely in his twenties um, is, is, is not somebody who thinks in terms of fairy tales uh, and who sounds like a friend that you might hang out with on the weekend. Um, and it was uh, useful for me to situate in this story and in some of the others characters who do not know that they are in a fairy tale, um, but who, once they begin to uh, experience uh, strangeness, respond to it in the way that they would respond to to other things. You know that that I think that that all of us have the experience in life that uh, our ways of expressing how how real life events or real life trauma or basically any kind of large event, um, I, I feel that oftentimes, especially in spoken language, our register is sort of inadequate, but there is, there's a kind of honesty in acknowledging that. And I think that it feels, at least when I encountered on the page, it feels like there's a kind of honesty to recognizing that, that, that our registers and our experiences sometimes are at odds. Okay, uh, makes perfect sense. And I'm perhaps taking a quote unfairly out of context here. Um, but I read something. I've read a lot of interviews with you this week to prepare for this. Um, and I read. <laughs> try not to repeat myself. I'm trying to repeat other people's questions if possible. So I like to know what people have asked you so I can do something different. Um, but I invariably end up just asking you about your answers that you gave to other people. <laughs> <laughs> You said in another interview that there is no such thing as real or unreal when you're writing your stories. Is that what you're talking about there? Or is that something, is that a different aspect of storytelling? Because that seems to be, to me, what you're getting at, that all of these things can be, you know, applicable to a character in a certain story. I think that they are very related. Um, you know, the idea of the real and the unreal uh, is very much borrowed from Le Guin. Uh, I run a small press with my husband. We published a two-volume and collection of, of some of her stories, which was called The Real and the Unreal. And when I'm working, that's sort of that, that territory, the space where those things overlap or ideas of what is real or unreal overlap uh, is, is the territory that I'm most interested in exploring. But I think that there is, um, there's something in, uh, in that space in which uh, the, the, the everyday life that, that we are sort of immersed in, on top of which is enfolded our experience of the things that we've read, the things that we've watched, uh, the things that have happened to us that we, we don't entirely understand. And again, our responses to them. You know, if, if somebody tells you about something real that, that happened to them that was, that was terrible, we don't have the right language to acknowledge that. If somebody tells you, uh, something terrible that happened. I think most of us will say, I'm sorry, or, oh my God, that sucks. Uh, that's awful. And that, that sort of finality or that sort of um, very basic inadequate language is part of the human experience that we, that we feel things um, that we are unable to put into words that, that, that we are inarticulate about. And I know that writing is supposed to be the place where um, we have time to think through about the language that we would most like to use. And it is a place where you can um, sort of reach for description or for meaning um, in, in a much more articulate way. But weirdly, it's also a space in which I'm always very interested in investigating inarticulateness and sort of describing the fact that 
that the failures of, of our language um, is, is for me, uh, really interesting territory. It's, there's pathos in it. It's, it's funny. Um, it feels true. Um, and if I am writing all of that into a story in terms of how our characters engage with the things that happen to them, um, then, then even though that language is, is maybe flat and their ways of seeing the world feel um, flattened in some way, uh, hopefully that, that has some dimensionality to it because we recognize that from our own experience. So you, when you were speaking then, light bulbs and fireworks were going off in my head. Hey. Because, well, <laughs> for very specific reasons, and, and now and again, this podcast kind of slips into kind of pretension and, and I disappear up my own backside sometimes. So I'll, I'll try and restrain myself here. But when you're talking about representing the failure of language, or when you're talking about being fascinated by how the real and the unreal fold into each other, that it just makes me think of weirdly loads of like French critical theory, <laughs> mm. uh, and also going back to back to authors like like Borges and people like that who used literature as a almost like thought experiments. You know, it's a way to examine a concept packaged within a story. I, I've been reading a lot of your back catalogue, and I read one of my favourite of your stories, um, Two Houses, from your collection, Get in Trouble. Um, and in, on one side, that's a ghost story, beautiful ghost story. And on the other, it is it is kind of like Jean Baudrillard and the hyper-real and that sense of the real and the fake and not being able to tell them apart. And all of that stuff seems to be packed in there as well. So that's my long-winded, very pretentious way of kind of asking you, do you sometimes come to the to your stories as a way to package an idea or is the story always paramount i think that uh writers writers uh don't necessarily all have the the same kernel uh that sort of introduces them to the the thing that they're going to write but for me it's often uh image driven so that there is a a space or a a, a kind of uh, tableau that I can see in my head, uh, um, which I am interested in exploring. And the thing that needs to, because of course that's a, that's a static thing, you know, that if I could paint, maybe I would paint those things, but I can't. And so the next part of the process is thinking, well, what is, what is the thing that would be this, what is the story? What is what is the genre that I want to engage with? Um, what is the what is the the tonal quality or the emotion um, that that I feel that this story is drawing out? And yes, what is the what is the thing here that would be interesting to explore, or that maybe doesn't exist in real life, or which uh, I can complicate in some way? Uh, as yes, a kind of thought experiment. And I think that the word that I use rather than thought experiment is is play. Uh, where is the element of play? What is the what is the thing that that real life uh, doesn't entirely have, but which I can play with in a story? Uh, what's my allowance for for play? But I think that that is the same thing as as what if it is a kind of, imaginative exploration of a of a concept or a kind of decision that needs to be made um, or uh, what kind of emotion comes out of a certain kind of action or a, a new kind of territory that a, that a person might find themselves in and how can I take that as seriously as possible as I'm as I'm playing with that idea okay yeah, well, so basically, it's it's both then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and I I keep coming back. I keep kind of yes anding you and saying, oh, you just said a phrase. Sorry to keep turning you back on yourself, but you just use the phrase, "How much play are you allowed?" You do a particular thing with short stories that fascinates me because I'm unable to do it. Right, I'm endlessly fascinated by writers whose ideas seem unrestrained by 
dull logic. I can't think up those ideas. I can't write stories like that. I feel very constrained and very contained in my ideas. I always end up searching for this kind of very logical A to B cause and effect. Whereas you seem to feel, or you certainly demonstrate, absolutely none of that containment. Is that fair? You know, I I think that the restraints that I have for a particular story... I have to choose. I have to choose uh, the size box. Um, I have to choose the things that I will rule out. Um, and so those to me are decisions that I make rather than decisions that I feel have already been imposed on me. And that's not entirely true. I'm, you know, culturally, my family history, all of that, of course, is going to factor into the things the the kind of books that that I've read that that uh you know matter to me as a writer all of those are are going to set up a, a kind of field of constraints for me um but to me the short story is capacious and forgiving and elusive you know things ideas attract other ideas that that the story uh expands and um is is generous i feel that for many writers there's a point at which either their 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 reading or the kind of work that they have done gives them permission um, that they feel that they have finally been given permission to engage in the kind of writing that interests them and in the ideas and in the structures that interest them and I know that early on when I was was writing, uh, my question was, can I do this? Can I do this? I can't say that I have ever really truly enjoyed writing, but it did give me a great deal of delight to think, can I do this? And then find that I could do that, that, that the story would, stories would allow me uh, that kind of freedom. I talk to to newer writers um, and and they will say, I didn't know that you were allowed to do this. And of course, you know, at least on the page, you're allowed to do whatever you want. The question is, um, how do you make it work? How do you make the things that you want to do work in a way that gives other people access to those stories? Well, that's exactly it. It's the how. And yeah. it's probably a bit un unfair for me to it's like asking you to take apart your favorite toy and show me how it works. It's not it's all the magic trick. You know, it's not really fair. But say, for example, um, you, you mentioned a short a, a fairy tale called East of the Sun, West of the Moon. I've never heard of it before, but you re-envisage it as a story that you call Prince Hat Underground in this latest collection. Now, I'm sure there's lots of rigor behind that and structure that and, 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 and scaffolding that you're not showing us. But that story is essentially a series of utterly bizarre events that slide from one to the next about a journey into a kind of underworld. And it's a kind of sequential, almost picaresque story. That it's just layers of, of absurdity in a way. And how do you stop something like that devolving into complete meaningless chaos? How does it not become something that's the equivalent of that kid at school going, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't I do. know how you're. I don't know how you're doing it. Well, I I think I know exactly what you mean about the kid at school, and the one thing about that kid at school is that's usually a kid who was having such a good time uh and and so I I celebrate that kid even if I have been the person listening to that kid and thinking all right all right yeah all right maybe maybe let's talk about something else obviously what I do is not going to work for everybody for some people it is going to be excessive or it's just going to be too scattershot or that connective tissue is not going to work for them and I I understand that uh that's true for all writers that that the whole world is not your audience. If you're lucky, you find the corner of the world uh, who might be your audience, at least for some of your work. But with that story, I'm so glad you used the word picaresque because uh, it's one of my favorite modes when I read, but I, I don't feel that, that uh, it is 
it is a kind of a rambling structure. I fear it a little bit. Uh, so what I wanted with Prince Head Underground, which bizarrely is a is a variant. Um, there is a variant of East of the Sun, West of the Moon called Prince Hat Underground. And so I love the original fairy tale, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, too much to go near it directly. Uh, Prince Hat Underground was my, my way of approach to something that I love too much to tamper with. Um, it's about somebody who goes basically to the ends of the world to find the person that they love. And if you were writing about somebody who wants something that badly, who wants their lover back again, I think that the audience, the reader, is going to mostly be sympathetic to that. To talk crudely, that buys you a certain amount of indulgence. And so as I wrote that story, it is a story where somebody goes from place to place looking for help. They get help from very weird uh, personages. And so I had that as a model. But because it is a picaresque and it is a very loose structure, um, I had to make sure that the people that, that my main character, Gary, encounters um, were entertaining or strange enough to keep the reader's interest. And so they had to be funny. They had to be a little weird. They had to be a little scary. And so much of the pleasure for that story came from how do I make those encounters as interesting as possible and as unexpected mm -hmm. um, that I, I, I think of as I write, uh, I'm thinking of the through line of the story as, as a kind of a fishing line. Uh, that has to have a certain amount of tension on it. Um, and if it gets too loose, then I, if I feel that I am, I'm beginning to drift too much, then I expect the reader may also drift away. And so I have to think, I heard a writer once describe progress of a, of a novel or of a story, a narrative progress and, and um, the arc of a story is being the promise that the thing that happens next will be more interesting than the thing that you just read, <laughs> which is vague, um, but I think accurate. And so in revision, or as I move forward in writing, I'm constantly thinking, is what I'm doing now more interesting or maybe more revealing than the thing that I did in the last scene? Or is it just a, a kind of continuation? I, there are lots of ways to do that. I suppose in a way that feels deep to the reader or, or sensationalist. And I like melodrama. I, I don't mind a little bit of sensationalist material, uh, but, but if you're a writer, uh, you have access to all these other modes as well. Uh, humor, um, moments of, of, of uh, grotesquery or horror. Um, I think we have those experiences in real life. Um, and so when I reproduce them by sort of using the fantastic, that feels um, not just valid to me, but it, it feels like the point, the point of writing at all. Well, I, I have read you say before that, and you said it a moment ago, that you, you don't enjoy writing, but you, quote, find it interesting. And you've just used the word interesting now. So can you elaborate on that? What, what do you mean you don't enjoy writing? I find, you know, I we began this and I, I mentioned that, um, you know, part of writing for me is the description of, of kind of the failures of language. And when I begin writing, I am very aware of my personal failures when it comes to, to language that, that I often feel that I am reproducing work with someone else or an, an emotion or a sensation or a description, which someone somewhere else has done in a much more interesting way. There are so many good books out there in the world already that, that when I begin something new, I am holding it up to the work that means the most to me uh, that someone else, someone else made. And, and that's excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, can't say that I particularly enjoy life. Um, you know, I 
I don't expect to be happy all the time. I don't expect all of life to be pleasurable, but I do really hope that life will be interesting. You know, that, that, that at the moments in which uh, I am doing um, routine work or going through uh, sort of things which, which are painful or tedious or whatever, um, that, that I feel that my goal as a person who is alive should be to find the things that makes those moments, to find the interest in those moments, to find new ways of thinking about them and finding interest in stuff in which you are experiencing unhappiness or boredom sort of is, is transformative. I have a sort of code I live by, which isn't a million miles from that, but it, but it seems a lot, a lot less healthy. My code is when presented with two choices in life, do the thing that later will make the best story in the pub. <laughs> that seems good. I, you know, my husband and I have a, have a bookstore and on most of the bookmarks that we make for our store, um, we put a quote, which I believe is Alistair Gray, which, which says, work as if you live in the first days of a better nation. And I, that quote means a lot to me because uh, it encapsulates the fact that I think work, work, work is what we're here to do. Um, that things are not as good as they ought to be, but we ought to be uh, sort of moving towards, uh, you know, a better and more just uh, world in which there is more, more joy for more people. Um, which is, you know, it's also, I, as you say, I think it makes a much better pub story, which is uh, one of my, the club story or the pub story is one of my favorite modes of horror. So this is a question you've probably been asked before off the back of what you just said, but you mentioned horror there, but I know you're lauded for how you mix genres often in the same story and you do, but do you have a favorite genre or perhaps Perhaps a better word is aesthetic or tradition to work in. And you don't have to say horror just because this is talking scared. <laughs> uh, that is a hard question to answer. As a reader, my favorite genre is is horror. Is it really? That, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for movies as well that I will read a ghost story given the opportunity before I read anything else um, or I will watch a scary movie um, before watching anything else. But I am a pretty restless writer. Um, when I started out, I didn't particularly think that I was mixing genres. I thought I was was writing in, in the middle of those genres. Um, but But I think it has become clear, if not to me, then to to people who, you know, whose job it is to sort of consider where I'm sitting, that that I I'm not necessarily writing in in the heart of the genres that that are the ones that that I'm I most love. And often when I sit down to write, I will think I want to write something scary, but I'm not sure that that the results that I have really stuck the landing in terms of writing something where the, the, my primary goal maybe shifts. Um, and so I am blending in some, some other, some other kinds of genres when I work. Okay. So that's a beautiful way of skirting the question and keeping everyone happy. <laughs> I, I mean, I, if I, if every story that I wrote could be a ghost story, um, I, if, if I could only pick one genre, I think, uh, that's where I would land. And then I think uh, the question would be, how much humor are you yeah. allowed if the primary emotion that you're going for is to terrify? Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm trying to think about my favorite of your stories, and I suppose they are, weirdly, the least funny, although there are still things to laugh at in them. So the three stories of yours, I can easily say that I've read my favourite stories of yours, I'll say two, we'll get to them one in a bit, it will be no surprise to anybody. But in your previous collection, Get In Trouble, there are two tales. One, we've mentioned previously, Two Houses, which is, it is a ghost story. And it's it's a thing I especially love because it's a ghost story that features people sitting around telling ghost stories. Mm. It, it just so happens that they're in space when they're doing it. Um, 
But the other one is um, a story called I Can See Right Through You, which I would also argue is very much an offbeat kind of ghost story. Um, but I love that one because of how the sadness and, and the loss that's held between these two people just sneaks up on you. The story kind of ambushes you into caring and then it it hits you with this sort of stinging, creepy ending. Would you agree they're both ghost stories of a kind? Yes, and I'm glad that you like both of those because those uh, are are uh, two of my favorites. Uh, because of course, writers are allowed to have have favorites, uh, favorite children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I can see right through you is uh, maybe the story that took me the longest to write. I read that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it is to me. Uh, it is the story where I feel that I got to um, explore sort of the idea of of haunting, and you know, it, it is on one level. I think it's it's kind of a funny story. It's about a a guy who does not who who sort of sees himself clearly in some ways and not in other ways, sort of in some ways coming literally face to face with 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 the worst aspects of himself and that you know the that last last line of the story to me in some ways is is very funny because he has managed to make something about himself again uh, <laughs> you know and and he's but he's also realized something which is uh even if it is about him um it's not it's you know he's he he is no longer sort of the he's he's both centered himself and also realized that he's not the center and i one of my favorite forms the the sort of vampire tv show is a is a form in which the actors uh, who play vampires are of course in real life uh getting older (laughs) and if a show lasts long enough you sort of gradually see this this happen and it it must be uh more painful in some ways than than other genres of of tv shows for those actors since in fact they they are playing people who stay preternaturally beautiful forever um and and there that's a that's an actual human emotion that is a regret or sort of a longing uh, for for the the unreal you know mm-hmm. what actor or what person wouldn't want to sort of remain in their prime um for as long as possible maybe the reason i i responded so much to i can see right through you is as a a male podcaster i'm very very familiar with making everything about myself <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we all do it. We we, I believe it's actually probably my dad was a psych- psychologist, and I believe that if you do not make stuff, um, if you are not able to find yourself in the frame, um, that that's probably a kind of condition. Sure, um, but is they need therapy for it? Is there any greater narcissism <laughs> than a, than a man going? You know what the world really needs? An hour of my voice every week that no one asked for. It's going to create this show so the world can listen to what I think about books. You know, like it's a rare form of narcissism. But a very enjoyable one. (laughs) (laughs) One of the strangest stories in the collection is a rewriting of Hansel and Gretel that's a sort of space opera in miniature. And you dedicate it to Ian Banks. Was he an inspiration of yours? Uh. Yes, I mean, an inspiration uh, in the sense that I have read and loved his work uh, for years. Um, my husband is originally from from Scotland, and one of the first writers that we realized we we loved in common was Ian Banks. Um, but also science fiction of all the genres, I find. I find the hardest to write in a way that seems um, fully realized and entertaining. Well, uh, also, you don't really go for an easy... I've never read a science fiction story that you've written that has taken the easy way out. You know, like that story in particular, um, is it called A Game of Smash? I forgot the name of it, sorry. A Game of Smash and Recovery. That's the one. I mean, it is a very conceptual story that had me all over the place. I, I was like, it took me ages to work out what was going on, you know? So you're not exactly making it easy for yourself to write this stuff. No, or for the reader. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the things that I love about 
space opera or far future science fiction, but which is very, very hard to pull off is the shifts in language, the, the shifts in point of view, the shifts in terms of what it will mean to be, to be a person or an individual and, and the shifts in terms of um, what kind of consciousness uh, might individuals other than humans have. Um, so if I'm, that story is about uh, two children, um, more or less, on um, an alien planet who are so far removed um, from, from what we might consider human or um, from, from sort of a, the life that, that, that we have on this planet, that it was, I had to figure out how to write from a very strange point of mm-hmm. view. And that's true of science fiction. You have all of these decisions to make, how language have changed, how ideas of personhood have changed. What is the setting like? What is the gravity? What is what what other kinds of life are there that you are much freer to invent strangeness, but also you have to figure out how you're going to present it to the reader. And some writers like Kim Stanley Robinson are great at giving you a great deal of information. Uh, Ted Chang and I, I am I'm not that writer. I don't my my confidence is not in that arena. I am much more interested in in um, not explaining things. And so the challenge is to do that in such a way that, if not easy, it at least feels like an interesting game for the reader. Definitely, and then I imagine that whole world building stuff you mentioned is is a lot harder in a five thousand word short story than it is in some expansive multi volume epic where you've got time for exposition and things. Whereas yes, you have to get it all there, subtly like breadcrumbs. No pun intended with the Hansel and Gretel thing, but you know you have to get it all doled out in little bite sized pieces that also move the story along. So it's it's quite a feat. I am. Um, making it about myself again i asked about ian banks because he's a particular inspiration of of mine i i met him he was the first author i ever met shortly before his death he was the keynote speaker in a conference i ran at sterling university talking about transgressive literature and he came to talk about the wasp factory that he wrote in his yeah and he was just the loveliest loveliest man so every time i ever see his name i just like to kind of raise a a figurative glass to him you know because he was the nicest gentleman of one i've ever met i think it's just such a shame that he died i absolutely agreed i i saw him on panels um and i wish that he had lived a lot longer mm. um but also that he had written even more books he has so many wonderful books one of the great delights of having a bookstore is we are <laughs> able to carry everything that he has that's in print um and recommend it to people who come in to browse. Right. Well, while we're on about recommending, um, before we get to your recommendation at the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask permission to geek out a little bit about Skinder's Veil. So this is the story that concludes White Cat, Black Dog. I first came across it in Ellen Datlow's When Things Get Dark, her collection in honour of Shirley Jackson which she came on the show to talk about that going on for two years ago. It's my favorite kind of multi-author anthology I've ever read. And your story and Laird Barron's Tiptoe are quite frankly, the best short fiction I've read in many years. And I'm not just being nice because you're on the show. If you go back and listen to past episodes and check my Twitter feed, I say it often when people ask about short stories they should read. Um, So Skinder's Veil, right? First of all, I suppose, can you give us, rather than me whittering on, can you give us enough info about that story for us to have a brief conversation about it? Absolutely. So it is about a young man who um, is finding it hard, as many people do, to finish his dissertation. And uh, so he, when he receives a, for many reasons, I think one, it's always hard to finish a large project. Uh, two, he has a roommate uh, who has embarked upon a love affair uh, with someone new, and they are having lots of sex in the apartment where he's trying to write. Hmm. And so he is—he uh, receives a call from a friend who has a house-sitting gig 
which she is going to have to abandon. And so he goes up to take it over and um, turns out that there are a lot of strange rules um, for anyone who is house sitting, which honestly, he does a pretty good job of following those rules. Yes. Um, a lot more enigmatic things happen than that. But um, first of all, I think a part of my love for this story is because I, I spent a season living in a very, very rural house in the middle of like wooded Vermont with no phone and no car, which is huh? exactly the position Andy pretty much finds himself in. So I, yeah, I, I was living on a farm. I was kind of doing this work away thing where you work for free just for board and lodgings. And the, the two guys I was living with would like would leave for weeks on end. So I was just me on a farm with some llamas and some sheep and a donkey and a pig and very creeped out because I couldn't call anyone if anything went wrong. So Skinder's Vale took me straight back there. I was like, it was I was back in the house I was in. It was the, the little country roads that I was on. It just felt redolent of my own experience. Um, so I, I honestly, I cannot tell you how much I love this story. And I read it for the second time and I found more stuff in it. And <laughs> I always say that I, I think my listeners know when I really love something because my voice adopts this tone. But like I would buy both Ellen's anthology and your collection on the strength of that story alone. But let's talk about it. And I'm very, very glad that uh, that it felt in any way that it that it, it evoked that that experience. Oh, um, completely, yeah. completely. Uh, I'm not always this kind of nice and obsequious. Sometimes I'm quite <laughs> neutral about books. You know, like this is all very genuine. Um, linking back to Ellen's collection, I've always wanted to ask you if ever I had the chance. How, in your mind, does it relate to Shirley Jackson? I think that it. I mean. Honestly, this was a a story that I knew that I wanted to write anyway. That I I had this idea about a house sitting gig where the the rules felt suggestive of 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 consequences, maybe terrible consequences if you broke them. And so I knew that I already had this this story in mind, and so I wrote it for Ellen for this anthology of stories in Shirley Jackson's honor. Uh, what I was thinking about was was um, Shirley Jackson's language, her sort of ability to evoke mood, um, but also trusting that um, the fact that she has been um, a real influence on me meant that that might be visible in anything that I wrote, that, that if I were true to myself as a writer uh when i when i was working on this story that there would already be a fair amount of, of shirley jackson present because she is very important to me she comes up more than any other author on this show i think even more than stephen king i would i would argue um and i can certainly see going back to that thing about the uncanny and the mundane colliding you know that's very much a Shirley Jackson thing it's there in your fiction the slipperiness of that juxtaposition I also always get a sense that Angela Carter kind of lives through you I I absolutely love Angela Carter um and you know I I don't know that I tonally that I am anywhere in that same space I don't know tonally that I'm entirely in in Shirley Jackson's tradition either but um they are they are writers who have meant a lot to me as a reader and and I celebrate them for some of the things that mm -hmm. that I don't feel that I can do. Uh, kind of the voluptuousness of, of Angela Carter's um, language and kind of the versatility of, of Shirley Jackson's approach um, to writing humor, to writing about her own life short stories um to the novels which which range pretty widely as well um you know they are they are remarkable writers to me and we were talking about permission earlier and i feel that they 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 absolutely um allow many writers currently working um entry to to really interesting territory 
Mm-hmm. I'm not going to allow you to say you don't have versatility like baked into your writer's bones because I think that's the the thing that I would say about you first is how versatile your stories are. Um, but but Skinder's Veil actually is a great way, I think, to really knuckle down on this thing that I've been trying to ask you throughout this and not quite articulating the question. Y- you said that you came up with an idea about a house-sitting gig that could have consequences, right? And I get how that is the bones of it. But then as you read it, and as in so many of your stories, there's all this seemingly tangential detail. So the fact that Andy's roommates are having a lot of sex, and then we find out that his the girlfriend of this couple is convinced that she's being pursued through her life by some kind of haunting presence. And that seems like its own little, like, you know, pocketed story but in fact there's the implication that 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 presence could have followed andy to the house that he's sitting in or there's this whole mythology about death and the way that death comes calling to his own house and 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 that becomes kind of you know one way of one possible fishing line through this story is there though yeah is that even the way to is that even the right way to approach the question? Is there a single through line? When you sit down, do you think this is what I'm trying to tell here? And that there is a way to read this free of red herrings, free of tangents, there is a way through. Or is it up, up to the reader to put that jigsaw together? I think for me, the the tangents are often the the point of the story that that the the basic story is um, is sort of the line that you hang things on that you're interested in. Um, and I do think a lot as I work and as I revise about possible ways that, that a story can be read. And this is always true with the fantastic, especially with horror, that um, because it appeals to emotion or because it provokes emotion, um that those are often connected to to readings or meanings that that you know come from the id and may have resonances that are kind of horrible whether they are ideas about um who deserves to be, who to be considered a person about gender about sexuality about race and so when I am working with the fantastic, especially in horror, I'm trying to make sure that that those those sort of emotion or um, emotion driven readings, the the things that are easiest to latch on, are are not conservative in the sense of they you know they sort of reflect impulses or beliefs that are floating out there uh, socially or culturally. But I want to allow as much space for different readings that will connect um, to to a reader's life, in which they can sort of make their make their own path. Um, well, and I want to make sure that 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 path and 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 my idea of the story connect in some way. But I want there to be a kind of freedom to. Um, it's not quite choose your own adventure, but mm-hmm. it is. Um, Bring your bring your own uh, personal baggage and your your own experiences and your own pleasures um, into this this space um, that I'm trying to make big enough that that meaning can come out of out of out of what what the reader brings. So, with all that in mind, can I end this conversation in the most self indulgent way? <laughs> By r- running my interpretation of Skinder's Veil past you and seeing, it, seeing if you think I'm right or not. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, sorry, listeners, this is stop being about you. This is about me now. Um, like basically, the, the, there's one because you can tell I'm obsessed by this story, right? And I read it again closely, and there's one particular detail, right? Early on, Andy's Andy's roommate describes him in really kind of scathing terms and he he says this he says if you drew a picture of andy's psyche rather it would be andy standing outside of the house where he lives and he won't go inside the fucking house he won't even knock on the door which seems to be a comment that andy is unwilling to know himself right and then 
Considering then the importance of houses and door knocking, literal literal door knocking and entrance in that story, that first comment seems to gather an importance. But I can't quite pin down what it means. It just feels too loose in my head. So can it possibly be that the story is about Andy coming to terms with knowing himself? I I think... Uh... Yes, you're right. But that I will say that that uh, that particular bit of description comes from um, something that a friend of mine uh, says about someone that we both know, and it has always uh, haunted me. Um, this this idea of of not not engaging um, with 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 any part of of oneself in in a in a way that that. Uh, allows you to to sort of see who you are um not that i think that we sort of accurately see ourselves anyway but yes um at the end of this story you know i andy andy is at that door again mm-hmm. and um i i think it is on one level very much a story about somebody who has gotten all the things that they thought that they wanted um but at the Point when they are sort of at that 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 peak moment, there is still something about their their life, you know, an experience that they once had that 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 troubles them um, in part because it was much more full of possibility uh, and 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 wonderful strangeness um, and sort of trying to go back and, and find that place again in which you sort of were on the way to becoming yourself, um, you know, not, I, 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 I think that that is absolutely at the heart of the story. Um, but I also, you know, it is a, in great part, it's a story uh, about my own uh, life during the pandemic and working on a very long novel that I could not get finished um, and wishing very much that I had access to uh, strange visitors <laughs> who would do that work for me. Um, yeah. So I, you know, for me, I, I'm in a weird place where my, my, for once, my personal, uh, the personal reading I have of that story has sort of um, subsumed many of the other readings that I once saw in it. Okay. Well, I'm just, it's been a delight to talk to you about it. I believe you've finished the novel now. Is that right? I have finished the novel, but I just want to say one more thing, which is that that Laird Barron story, Tiptoe, is one of my all-time favorite stories. That when I read that, I, you know, my a cold line went up my back. Mm -hmm. I um, immediately reread it. Uh, Every time I reread it, I am infinitely creeped out and find new things. It feels like a timeless kind of folk tale that's been re-excavated you know there's something timelessly scary about it yeah uh, i just think it's yeah those two stories because like, i read that collection read the anthology enjoyed it loved it a lot love shelly jackson loved a lot of the stories in it got to those last two it's like it was like a double punch to the face i just <laughs> I thought, they were, thought they were brilliant honestly um but this novel because i know that you You've written novels before, but never published them, and you've kind of eschewed them um, more recently. So, was it the pandemic? Did you finally think, right? If not now, when? No, and honestly, I have started novels in the past, but I have never really wanted to write one. Um, but when I sold the collection, get in trouble to Random House, um, my friend, the writer Holly Black, pointed out that my short stories were becoming longer and longer. And she said something that haunted me. She said, if you don't write a novel on purpose, you will write one accidentally. (laughs) And that's not a lot of fun. And so I sold a novel. I thought she was probably right. Um, So when I sold the collection, I sold a novel as well. Uh, That would have been in 2017. So I had an idea for a trilogy. um, And I decided I would try and make that into a novel. Um, and unsurprisingly, that meant it was a very long novel. Um, and right around the time that I was writing Skinder's Veil, I was maybe 
5,000 words away from the end of, of writing that novel. And how long is it then in the end? Uh, 210,000 words. Wow, you've gone That's maximalist. A beast. And it's I a did. Com- <laughs> and it's a coming, a coming of age story, right? It is. Uh, yes, it is a coming of age story. It's a story about people coming back from the dead um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out one, how they died, and two, um, how they can stay alive. Nothing excites me more than a big, massive, immersive coming-of-age story. That, that is good <laughs> news. So that's what we, I've recommended Skinder's Veil there. Um, so I'm going to ask you now, can you recommend a book for my listeners to read and tell us why? I'm going to recommend Megan Giddings' uh, recent novel, The Woman Could Fly, uh, which is horror adjacent um it is about a version of the contemporary u.s in which women have to register as witches um, oh. when they reach a certain age and it's beautiful and really moving and what's it called again sorry the women could fly by megan megan, megan giddings megan giddings right and that, that's a new one on me i will add that to the show notes that sounds I mean, amongst all of these gender dystopias we've got, that at least sounds like quite a fun one. It is. It is. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of magic in it. Um, and it is also a really compelling commentary on uh, where we are in this particular uh, historic moment. Well, yeah, quite. Uh, well, that might lead into the, the final question, actually. Maybe not. But what truly scares you, Kelly? You know, I read uh, Marianne. I'm my dog is barking. My dog is being scared by some. <laughs> I loved uh, Mariana Enriquez's Our Share of Night, which I actually found so scary that I had to stop reading it at night. Uh, I can read almost anything usually, but but that novel uh, was too much in a very good way. What about it scared you? Because it did a lot of things to me. It didn't scare me. Uh, I think it was the section, sort of the the heart of the story, in which some kids um, have decided that they are going to go into a house, which mm-hmm. is much bigger and stranger on the inside, but even on the outside, has a particular feeling about it. And uh, I could not bear, uh, as they went from room to room, uh, they encounter some really weird, mm-hmm. some really gross stuff um and i thought i can't read this right now i don't want to see what happens when they go in the next room well that's a great answer and you've it, basically you've shoehorned another recommendation into the show as well so that's always good efficiency <laughs> there efficiency at the end of this um as i've said if you listen to this now white cat black dog has been out for a week um i've, I've waxed lyrical enough about these stories Make your own mind up, but I think they're great. And well, all I'll say, Kelly, is thank you for joining us and, and thank you for talking scared. Oh, thank you so much. This was an enormous pleasure. Another week, another phenomenal guest. Is there anything better than having a favourite story and then having the chance to ask the author all about its secrets? And to be honest, you got off lightly because I could have talked about Skinder's Veil for another hour. I've said it before, but that story alone is reason enough to buy White Cat, Black Dog. It's also reason enough to buy Ellen Datlow's When Things Get Dark. And if you want to hear more about that anthology, you can go listen to episode 66, I believe. Ellen and I talk about Skinder's Veil again, as well as Laird Barron's Tiptoe and Shirley Jackson in general. And if you guys are sick of me talking about Shirley Jackson, well, sorry. Uh, There's nothing much I can do about it, really. She comes up so often for a reason. And actually, thinking ahead over the next few episodes, I expect it to come up again. Maybe it's the talking, scared, bingo drinking game that I think should exist. I have read other authors than Jackson and King. It's just so hard to contextualise any contemporary horror without reference to them. Why am I even apologising? Shirley Jackson is fantastic. Go read her and stop moaning. 
I do realise that no one is moaning and now I'm just having an argument with myself. <laughs> anyway, right. There are plenty of reasons beyond Skinder's Veil to check out Kelly's black cat, white dog. There's a story called The White Road that's beautifully odd and inexplicable and would make a phenomenal movie. There's the unpredictability of Prince Hat Underground, which is the picaresque tale we talked about. And that has some startling imagery, including a man being wrung out like a towel. And there's the hard sci-fi tale we mentioned, a game of smash and recovery, which I'm still not sure I understand. Like I said, right at the start, if you enjoy reinvented fairy tales, you'll love this. If you don't like them, and typically I don't really enjoy that subgenre, then you can still read almost all of these stories without any clue that they have a link to anything beyond themselves. Not all are horror by any means, but most of them are haunting. And have I mentioned this tale called Skinder's Veil? Man, it's great. <laughs> You can get in touch with me to talk about the show, about books, about things you'd like to hear or guests you want me to invite on. Just email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Insta and TikTok at talkscaredpod. Oh, and as I ask every single week, please, please leave a review where you get your podcasts. It makes a massive difference to everything. I'm back next week with another strange and whimsical book with more than a few nods to Miss Jackson, though it also has island monsters that live in a quarry, so something for everyone. That's The Insatiable Vault Sisters by Rachel Eve Moulton. Until then, sing a song, dance away the winter, and join hands and pray that bad people get their comeuppance in court. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.